I remember being, you know, a little bit surprised and when I was in my younger days about how much people would brag about being sleep deprived and like pulling all nighters. And it's pretty ridiculous. It's almost like bribing about like, yo, I smoked three cigarettes last night and like bragging about like, it's like the health outcomes of that are probably on a similar playing field. I hear it's worse. It's, it's probably worse. And I'm, I'm a New Yorker and, you know, the city that never sleeps. And you still kind of get that there. People really bragging about overworking themselves. I believe in that you're going to produce more efficiently if you have all of your cognitive resources and sleep does just that. And there's actually lots of evidence that in organizations, like, for example, your sales force will perform better when they're not, you know, sleep deprived and grumpy the next day. And so that's another interesting angle. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. If you want to fall asleep during this episode... I wouldn't blame you. The science is pretty darn good. We've got Dan Gartenberg on the program. And yes, that was a pun because Dan, also known as Dr. Snooze, is a TED fellow and sleep scientist focused on helping people achieve optimum performance, primarily through optimizing their sleep. There's some incredibly interesting stuff that he's working on, research they've done, and things you need to implement in your life to just have a better, healthier, longer living, sexier, smarter, smoother, everything awesomeness type life. And yes, sleep, it's a third of your life. It's the way that we recharge our bodies and it's the way that we apparently restore and repair our bodies as well. So let's dive into that. This is a fun one. Here's why. Today we'll discuss how wearables and the quantified self movement will change what it means to be human. The science of sleep, longevity, and disease, it's really good. Why Dan dedicated his life to optimizing sleep and life. The truth about sleep hacking and biphasic sleep, those folks that like to sleep and then wake up in the middle of the night and then go back to sleep later, like the the Abraham Lincoln type deals. Why your lights in life may be killing you. How phones and social media are screwing our kids. What's the cutting edge of personalized health and the reason we're going to be all cyborgs anyways. And now, without further ado, I give you Dan Gartenberg. You probably know I'm big on biohacking and trying to make myself the best I can be. That's why I'm excited about what the guys at Neurohacker Collective and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who was previously on the podcast, are doing. They're some of the smartest biohackers on the planet, and their Qualia line of brain-enhancing nootropics make it obvious why. You guys can get 15% off any order, or with a subscription, 50% off and 15% off every future order by going to disruptors.fm slash qualia, that's Q-U-A-L-I-A, and using coupon code disruptors at disruptors we're big on health and biotech for a reason it amplifies everything disruptors.fm slash qualia use coupon code disruptors and now let's get on with the program we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things not because they are easy but because they are hard okay so mr what mr whatever what makes someone go and become a sleep expert and study that that seems odd there's a story yeah, there is a story. Uh, part of it is being a sleep-deprived de- teenager, literally passing out in class constantly. It's pretty ridiculous that they make you wake up at the exact worst time for your circadian rhythm when you are in high school. And they actually have some really interesting studies about moving the start time back just a half an hour has like a dramatic improvement in like SAT scores and all these other metrics. But what happened to me in particular was I've always been an inventor And in college, I actually worked for a brainstorming company. And I was in like early quantified self movements. And I'm always trying to optimize. And one of the ideas was something around an alarm clock that measured your sleep. And I just kind of got carried away with the fact that sleep is basically the human behavior that we do the most of. So if you could just improve this behavior ever so slightly it would have a massive global health ramification. And so that was sort of the spark. And then when I took a neuroscience of sleep class as a senior, I really began to see how wide reaching this problem really is. Basically, it impacts every chronic health disease. Um, And I'm from a family of doctors who always told me not to become a doctor because of how broken the system is. 
So if I was going to change anything, I wanted to change something systematically. And I see sleep as a pathway to doing just that. And doing it outside the system so you don't have to deal with uh, regulatory bullshit for the most part. Yeah. I mean, at least to start out that way. But really what we're trying to build with our technology is actually something that clinicians can use. So, you know, when I look at medicine, what's happened is in order for the doctor to maintain autonomy and frankly, continue to make money due to how the insurance companies have manipulated things, they have to become increasingly specialized. And the generalist in medicine is kind of dying out. And we think we can use technology in a way that, that will facilitate the um, psychologist, you know, sleep, re- sleep clinician, even your, you know, coach at Equinox to really understand your sleep metrics and use that to optimize your performance. And let me, let me see if I can summarize. Basically, at least in terms of the health and disease aspects, they found that almost all major chronic diseases are caused from inflammation, activating something in our DNA that we don't want to activate. Sleep re- reduces inflammation. I mean, I think that inflammation is a big part of it. But when you go into like the specific diseases, it's like a little more complicated than that. So like, for example, one of our major focuses right now is, um, first off, the cardiometabolic hypertension stuff. There's like really strong causal evidence where like even a half hour of sleep deprivation raises your hypertension and like your um, likelihood of developing a, you know, cardiovascular disease. So that's kind of a different set of mechanisms than the inflammation, though the inflammation plays a role. What we focused on recently is actually Alzheimer's because the federal government is like, oh, we still haven't even come close to figuring this out. It's going to triple in the next 20 years. Uh, We really need to figure out something to try to reduce the conversion to Alzheimer's disease. And recently, there's been evidence that deep sleep in particular Um, plays a role in the accumulation of beta amyloid plaques in the brain, which is what are are associated with developing Alzheimer's disease. So I guess to kind of, you know, I think inflammation is a big aspect of, you know, sleep is a way of, you know, kind of centering the body. And but when you go into the cleaning, right, it's the it's, it's cleaning out. Yeah, it's cleaning out the bad chemicals in your body. You know, your it affects your immune system a lot. There's a lot of causal evidence for that. So I guess what I would say is it's a part of it, but there's various causal mechanisms that impact your health that sleep plays a role in. I find it interesting that it's happening at the same time. In the 10, maybe 15 years ago, the whole I don't need to sleep and I I can go, go, go was kind of the the mindset. And now sleep and meditation are becoming both increasingly important, at least in the public. Yeah. And I remember being, you know, a little bit surprised and when I was in my younger days about how much people would brag about being sleep deprived and like pulling all nighters. And it's pretty ridiculous. It's almost like bribing about like, yo, I smoked three cigarettes last night and like bragging about like, it's like the health outcomes of that are probably on a similar playing field. I hear it's worse. It's, it's probably worse. And I'm, I'm a New Yorker and you know, the city that never sleeps and you still kind of get that there. People really bragging about overworking themselves I believe in that you're going to produce more efficiently if you have all of your cognitive resources and sleep does just that. And there's actually lots of evidence that in organizations, like for example, your sales force will perform better when they're not, you know, sleep deprived and grumpy the next day. And so that's another interesting angle. It's the same deal like when you're hungry, the judges send more people to prison before lunch than after. Oh yeah. Similar kind of thing for sure. How do... Okay, so you were working at a brainstorming company. I want to go back to that for a sec because it sounds freaking awesome. <laughs> a, what were you doing? And B, why are there not more of these? Yeah, this was actually, I don't even know if it's around anymore. It was called Brain Reactions. I, I went to the University of Wisconsin and um, it, was, it was actually like, a, I, I, I'm just saying an example, like a, but a big company like a, you know, a soda company like Pepsi would be like, we need to innovate. Let's hire this external company to figure out a new strategy for our branding or whatever. And we would have these brainstorming ses- sessions that would follow like a methodology, methodology for conducting brainstorming in a creative environment. And literally, there ended up being hundreds of ideas. Um, and I, I was just, uh, this was 10 years ago. So I was like 20 years old, I guess, 
12 years ago. I'm getting old. And so my job was to sort through all the ideas and figure out the best ones. Um, and I just find, kind of found one that I ran with. How do you categorize an idea in terms of better or worse? That's a good question. I guess it's a multifactorial thing. You know, how many people is this actually going to help? Is it achievable? This was kind of right when the iPhone was coming on. And then so I was, you know, in a big way. So I was inspired about a new way of setting your alarm clock that actually improved your health because it's a human behavior that I did every day. And I guess some of this is a little bit selfish. At the end of the day, I just want to make something to, for myself to help myself be more efficient. I think a lot of times when you have that personal thread to the topic, um, it, can, a lot of, it sometimes indicates that, it, that a lot of things are hanging together for why this makes sense. So what is the latest science on this? I've heard of different things, people, people putting their phone on their bed or something to measure, measure vibrations, trying to use Fitbit sensors, and then waking you up when you're starting to hit the peak of your, your energy cycle. Because we've all been there where you wake up in the middle of the dream and you feel like shit. Yes. You wake up right after the, de- right after the REM sleep is over and you're like, wow, I feel like a million bucks. Holy cow, it's only been four hours. Something's working. So that, what you just asked is a really complicated, I'm going to give you, uh, I'll try to give you a succinct answer, but it's a long answer. So I was actually working on this for a while. I had one of the first apps that measured sleep with just motion data by measuring it on your bed. And at a certain point, after working for a Fortune 500 company that had algorithms that used motion data on the wrist, I really came to believe that you can't accurately measure sleep with motion data alone. And I actually discontinued the software that I had developed at the time uh, called Proactive Sleep. And I actually gave up for like a two-year period. Um, I had another startup for a while. And then during this time, the Apple Watch was announced. And I knew that with the heart rate sensor, you could finally start tackling this problem. So a really straightforward way to answer your question is, to accurately measure sleep, you need an electrode on the scalp, which is a pretty invasive form factor. To pretty accurately measure sleep, and we have a, some tricks to get very accurate, you at least need heart rate and granular motion data. And so we're coming at a point with the wearables where a scientifically oriented company like mine can actually just use the data from the Aura Ring, from the Fitbit, from the Apple Watch, do the hard science where we, to, in order to make this all possible, you basically need like 500 to, uh, 500K to like a million dollars to run these scientific sleep studies. And we've got that from the National Institute of Health to do all this, where we connect people to the best wearables alongside of a 16-channel electrode headset. And we'll bring people into this lab at Penn State. Uh, we work with a very well-known, uh, world-renowned professor there, uh, Dr. Afeo Buxton. And they'll stay in the lab, be hooked up to 16-channel electrode for a four-day period alongside the best wearables. And that's how we develop our sleep detection algorithms. And then we'll systematically play different sounds at them while they're sleeping to try to actually help them get more out of their sleep. And that's really the focus, one of the main focuses of our, of our research. So I totally wanted to get one of these apps a few months ago. And I have a not brand new top of the line Fitbit, which means it just doesn't work. I think a big, <laughs> a big part of the problem where we're at right now in the wearable space is it's all kind of in engineering. I remember we had to build a robot one time and the most valuable tool we had was duct tape. And I feel like everything's duct taped together. When does it start to get seamless? You were talking quantified self. When do we actually have a quantified self that doesn't suck? <laughs> I've been waiting for that and trying to solve that problem for a long period of time. I mean, I think it's starting to happen. I mean, clearly your experience with the Fitbit points that it hasn't fully happened yet. You know, with the Fitbit, so- something that I find in a lot of these hardware devices, it's just that to do the hardware, the software, and the science at the same time, Money. you know, it's a... You need a lot of, I mean, Fitbit has a fair amount of money, and I think they're even struggling. So I think it's a really hard thing to do all those things at once. What we think makes sense is to do the science, like to do the hard science algorithm stuff and just leverage the best devices out there. 
Basically, they, they need to buy you so they can set up a recurring business model. Um, well, we can just integrate with their hardware and use the use their heart because their sense. This is the thing: the sensor on the Fitbit is almost as good as an EKG, and they're all really good. The sensors are great in terms of accuracy, especially when you're sleeping, because uh, the motion artifact is one of the main things you have to overcome with these things. But when you're sleeping, that's less of an issue. So like, I, this is a technical detail, but like the R squared for like um, e- against EKG for like the Oura Ring and the Apple Watch is like 0.7. Like they're highly correlated. It's just the algorithms for measuring it aren't that great. And at the end of the day, what are you going to do with a Fitbit that says you got 3% deep sleep? Like there's nothing actionable about that. Where we think there's room for a lot of growth and, you know, energy is to actually give tailorized feedback based on what's going on with you and more importantly, physically improve your sleep quality by manipulating sound, light, and temperature at night. What's the business model behind that? So I know Fitbit's struggling because a one-off purchase is incredibly hard unless you're Apple and can slow down someone's iPhone. It's hard to make them buy a new <laughs> one. And that's, I mean, you, you were talking before, you, you were talking to a VC before this. You have a business model that works. It's, I imagine, recurring in some way. Is that the future for wearables is recurrable, recurring services? Built I think you got, you got to do the recurrent monthly, yearly subscription business model. You know, that's, that's how like the headspaces and the comps of the world have figured it out. And we're trying to do something very similar, but much more focused on the science of sleep in terms of the business model. So what would it look like? I, I, grab, a, I grab one of these, I start using it. What is that process like and why does it matter? I mean, our whole process, and I think this is very important, is I don't want to make money until you've tried it and it works for you. Like, that's just something that just like morally I I feel strongly about. And so our whole thing is, you know, try it for a week period. If it works, then it's a uh, yearly subscription. What are some sleep hacks that people could benefit from regardless of whether or not they're tracking something? Yeah, you know, I do these coaching sessions and One of the hard things about sleep and why it's, I think, so difficult for these companies is I need to really understand you to give you a good sleep hack. So, for example, um, if you were someone with insomnia, I would never tell you to take a nap because you should actually do the opposite. You should try to consolidate your sleep so you shouldn't, you know, take fragmented bits of sleep during, during the day. If you're someone like me who doesn't really have a sleep issue but just wants to optimize, Like the 20-minute power nap during your circadian dip, I think is something that's really good for like creativity, especially if you're dealing with like intractable problems that often happen more in like, you know, heavy lifting jobs, cognitive task jobs. How quickly do you have to fall asleep for that to count though? I know I feel like people that are taking a a 20-minute nap, well, when exactly are you actually falling asleep on that 20-minute nap? So that's a really good key distinction is when I say 20-minute power nap, I'm talking about sleep not necessarily um, laying down. Laying down, And this is another distinction for when we talk about sleep need. Like, you know, for example, I need around eight hours. So I usually spend around, around eight and a half hours in bed. So, so that is a really key distinction for understanding all this stuff. And that's p- perfectly normal. If you're spending 100% of your time in bed asleep, you're probably sleep depriving yourself. So, but that being said, even like a five to 10 minute power nap, like just that brief unconsciousness is going to give you that sensation where you wake up and then maybe you, you figure out that problem. I mean, Matt, have you ever, you know, experienced that? Are you not a napper? I cannot nap when I wake up. It's like I'm, it's like I'm high. I have no idea where I am or if it's the next day. And the experience is so overwhelmingly horrible. And it's because I'm somebody, if I, if I nap, I wake up in REM. And it's the day's ruined. Oh, yeah. So that was the other question that you were driving at before. Um, yeah, that 90-minute cycle. The 90-minute cycle. So here's the, here's the whole thing about the 90-minute cycle. So when you really look at this, there's a couple things. First off, sleep, there's a lot of individual differences. And while your cycles from night to night are pretty similar within yourself, like you could easily have a 100-minute cycle or an 80-minute cycle. That's one thing. The other thing is when you sleep, it goes light sleep, deep sleep, light sleep, REM. Light sleep, deep sleep, light sleep, REM. And you usually have around four to five of those cycles throughout the night. A key thing to realize is that you start out very heavy in deep sleep. And as the night goes on, 
so it's like 50% deep sleep to start out. And then by your fifth cycle, it's usually around like 2%. So when you're getting enough sleep, you're almost getting no deep sleep. And that's why they think like uh, deep sleep is so essential for your homeostatic need to maintain your, your sleep amount. Like if you sleep deprive yourself, you get more deep sleep, basically. In theory, the earlier you go to bed, the more deep sleep you get as well. Is it tied to sunlight or some type of... Uh, so I actually wouldn't say that. You want to... If you go to bed at a time that's out of sync with your circadian rhythm, and this is why it's a little bit nuanced and hard to give generic feedback, basically you want to go to the time that's... Like, I'm a night owl, so the best time for me to go to bed is to like 1230, um, if I want to improve my sleep efficiency the most. If I were to shift it forward... I would probably be reducing my um, deep sleep and increasing my REM possibly because I would be more likely to get REM later in the sleep night. And if I were to move it back, I, w I might be biasing it a little bit more towards deep sleep. But basically, you want deep sleep, you want REM, and you want to entrench your rhythm as much as possible in order to, to make sure you're, you're getting that sleep quality. And that's, that's what will give you that better sleep quality. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in essence, when we decided to cut back on fat and boosted up the sugar, that wasn't a good thing just because having a lower fat count was possibly a good thing. How do we how do we avoid that in terms of people hacking for pure deep sleep? Yeah, I mean, you, you want more deep sleep. So I don't think there's very many situations where you can overhack it. You basically want more deep sleep, you want more REM. You can do that with, you know, technology like what we're developing with simply like a sound mask in the room and this is one of the key things that we do blocks out noise pollution and makes you and therefore improves your sleep quality like even things like a you know a, a, um, air conditioner. yeah it's like pink noise uh, very similar to white noise but uh, pink noise is actually a greater spectrum of frequencies that gets blocked out and it's slightly softer on the human ear and we actually kind of use it to draw out people's attention too to try to stop the racing mind a little bit. But I think a, thing, a key thing that I want to bring up, which you mentioned, is uh, basically sleep inertia, I think, is what you're personally dealing with, it sounds like. That feeling of waking up very tired. Only for naps. Oh, you, oh it only happens for so naps. So I'm good during the day. I'm up and out and oh, okay. falling do you immediately. Have a, do you have I a good morning ritual? Wake up, go downstairs, get a little bit of coffee and work a write. That's fine. Yeah. But anyway, the reason with the nap is if you nap a little bit too long, that's when you're more likely to wake up in deep sleep, and that can cause what you're talking about. So is it possible that you were maybe oh, napping yeah. Th a little this bit? Was, this was college, reading over the books and reading over the math books in bed, and it's boring, and you fall asleep way too long, and then you're screwed. Yeah. So you, you want to reduce that. So it's all about making sure. You, and there's actually different types of naps for different types of situations. So like, for example, for a shift worker, sometimes what we would recommend would be you want to get extra sleep before the sleep deprivation, and that's called like an appetitive nap. And then so a, snack, um, a snack before lunch. What, uh, what is a nap before lunch? That's no, a power nap. Like a snack before lunch. Oh, yeah. Just like a snack before. Exactly. Yeah. So you want to build up your, um, your sleep in anticipation of having that sleep deprivation. Shift, um, work, shift workers have terrible health outcomes from that, don't they? It's actually now um, the World Health Organization has, has said that it's basically like being exposed to a carcinogen at the workplace. That's how bad it is. Yay for smoking. Yeah. Is, bi is biphasal sleep BS? I feel like it is from, the, from what I've read about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is some truth to the fact that we have this Western idea that sleep should be continuous for, you know, seven, hour, seven, you know, seven to nine hours throughout the night. And there was some, like, evidence in, like, Canterbury Tales and these old manuscripts that people would have, like, a second sleep. Um, and wake up in the middle of the night and like putter around and then go back to bed. But that's because the monks had to pray to God at horrible times of the night, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's probably why. It's a good point. Actually, totally, I didn't even totally think about that. I, I don't, I've never heard anyone talk about it, but I just realized I was, reading a, I was reading a book a while back, something about building a church. It was a super interesting book, uh, very fictionalized, but they always Did had Did they like, have to pray throughout the night? I didn't even yeah, know they, that they was have the, they have this silly this silly thing and it was sometime around midnight or 1am they have to wake up to do this service 
I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a religious hangover because the church kind of got to make the rules. Huh. Wow. Okay. So, so maybe that's an explanation. You heard it here. First. I know that. What? I said you heard it here first. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, thank, thank you. I'm always learning new stuff, even in, in my uh, area of expertise. But thank you for that. Oh, I'm full of crap. Um, Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. No, you're not. No, but um, I know that the Uberman polyphasic thing is total baloney. Terrible idea. Like the banana diet. Do not do that. Yes. But I mean, you know. I, Sometimes people, you know, say to me like, oh, I woke up in the middle of the night um, and they think that that's like a big problem. One thing that I try to make sure that people understand is it's not that abnormal to like wake up in the middle of the night, go to the bathroom and then fall back asleep. It's only like a problem if you're up for like more than 30 minutes, for example. If I want to look at my Fitbit percentages, what is that? Uh, 30 minutes obviously is going to be that. But in terms of like a number of times waking up, Better yet, what's a, what's a good percentage for deep sleep for people that track? Okay, yeah. So let's start with the most important thing, which is sleep amounts. Like when I talk to people, first I want to make sure that we're nailing how much sleep you need because that has the most impact on the health outcomes. And everyone's a little bit different. Seven to nine is the recommendation, which is a pretty big range. So one thing I want to figure out first is how much sleep do you actually need? And the threshold for the percentage of time in, in bed sleeping for like someone with insomnia. This is like a thing that I kind of think about. And by the way, I'm not a clinician. This is not clinical advice. You know, I have a PhD in cognitive psychology, but I'm not actually a, a clinician. But um, for example, how clinicians evaluate insomnia is if you spend less than 85% of your time asleep in bed. So for example, if you're spending like seven hours if you're sleeping for, if you're in bed for eight hours and you're spending like seven hours uh, asleep, that would be, you know, an indicator of a night of insomnia, for example. So trying to make sure that's more in like the 90 to 95% range is really important. And there's lots of things you can do to try to address that, namely cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is a multimodal approach to addressing this. And there's something you could, you know, use, your viewers can Google that and I can get into more detail on that if you want. And then the other question you had is the sleep quality. So usually you spend about 20% of your time in REM and that stays pretty static throughout your lifetime after 20. Like when you were kids, this whole thing is different. But then for deep sleep, when you're in your 20s, it's about 20% of your time. And then by the time you're 80, it's about 7.5% of your time. So we, there's, you know, a lot of correlational evidence and some causal evidence that this decline in deep sleep is what is actually causing aging. And so we think we can promote healthy aging by increasing your deep sleep percentage later on in life. And that's the main focus of like our grant funded research. Because your body's suddenly losing the hours to do that cleaning that it needs to clean itself out. Exactly. Be interesting if it's a cause or if it's an effect and it's very hard to prove. It's really hard to differentiate those things. Like they have like fMRI studies where they can get into this, where they'll like sleep deprive the person and they'll actually, for example, see the accumulation of different things related to Alzheimer's disease, even with a small amount of sleep deprivation when you put people in a scanner. There's also certain like ethical things when you deal with human subjects, but they have like, you know, dissected rats' brains and stuff to, and manipulated these things to figure stuff out. I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you about today's show sponsor, Design Crowd. I absolutely love this company. They allow you to essentially hire freelance designers around the world and get them to compete on your projects, whether that's a logo, whether that's a podcast cover art, which is how we got our cover for Disruptors, Fringe FM, and a bunch of other things I've done in the past. I love this company. I love the service. It's super fast, super effective, and you get great results. If you go to disruptors.fm slash design crowd, that's D-E-S-I-G-N-C-R-O-W-D, design crowd, then you can support Fringe FM and the Disruptors. Sorry, had to change the name because of the UFO crazies, of course. So if you want to support us, consider supporting our sponsors, Design Crowd. And now let's get back to the episode. I feel like with biology, it's generally a flywheel. It's one causes the other leads to the cascade of the other. Yeah, it's, it's oftentimes like a positive feedback loop, right? 
And that, you know, that happens a lot with insomnia is another example of that is you have some problems sleeping. It makes you worried that you're not going to be able to function the next day. I mean, almost everyone I think has dealt with this, which makes you have more problems not being able to sleep. And then it makes you (laughs) even more anxious and not able to, you know, function the next day. So breaking that psych, that positive feedback loop cycle is really important for your sleep quality. But yeah, I, I like to think about those. Uh, one thing causes the other thing, which exacerbates the first thing. It's, it happens a lot in systems theories, doesn't it? It always is, and we never get it. So yeah. let's say you can't sleep at night. You can meditate, read a book, do something else, or try to go to sleep. What do you do and why? Yeah, you can do a bunch of things. One of the main things that a sleep, uh, sci- or, you know, in the sleep world that we would recommend is save your bed for sleep and sex only. So basically, literally disassociating from that environment after 10 minutes when you can't fall asleep. Usually what I do is read a book in a dark room with a red light bulb. (laughs) It's actually, uh, or, you know, I I know you uh, listen to uh, Dave Asprey's podcast too, I think, um, with his like uh, true dark glasses. Um, There's increasing evidence that uh, red light is really if you want any light at night, that's what you, you're going to want to get. And so that's what I would recommend. Almost, I think this, Almost if you want any light, period. If, yeah, the best thing is no light, right? If there's a situation which is inevitably going to happen where you need light, it ought to be red. So I, I have a situation where, you know, before I'm going to bed, I'll say, hey, Google, I'm going to bed, and all the lights in my house turn red. Everyone should really have that. It's just a low-hanging fruit way to improve your sleep quality. How do, you, how do you do that? Are you buying specific color shifting bulbs? Uh, I, I personally use, uh, you can do it with basically Philips Hue or LifeX. I use the LifeX bulbs. And we're, we're integrating with that technology eventually. And maybe Philips. Because basically there's an ideal light environment to entrench your circadian rhythm. And when we use our sensors to figure out your rhythm, we can actually deliver to you your optimum light to give your body the cues for when it should be alert. Realistically speaking, is there any ever any real circumstance where we'd want blue lights? For instance, I have flux on my computer, overly, overly arched the entire day. Same thing with the phone, because the blue light just hurts the eyes. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you brought this up, because I think this is a misconception uh, in the media a little bit. Everyone's talking about no blue light at night. But the opposite of that is you want that blue light before noon in the daytime, you want to give your body that sunlight during the daytime. But not artificial. Um, well, I think that the artificial won't necessarily... It's more about the brightness of the light. So there's a way of creating artificial light that emulates the sun. You've probably seen like the happy lamps. Basically, oh, it's like 10,000... Li- you can buy... And this is a hack that I give to people a lot of times. There's these like less than $100 lamps that emulate the sun it really blasts, blasts you with a high dose of sunlight. The best thing you can do is go for a 30-minute walk before 12 o'clock every day, and that's going to entrench your circadian rhythm. If that, you know, can't, you know, you live in Portland, Oregon, or, you know, somewhere that doesn't have a lot of sunlight, an alternative are these happy lamps that sort of emulate the sun. So this is a complete 180, but your business is built almost entirely on mobile and on the app store. How terrifying is that? <laughs> I mean, Google and Android are going to be around for a while, so it's not that terrifying, but it's definitely terrifying in the sense that we don't want to be another app. And I, I really try to push back against that. You know, we're an Internet of Things software platform that's just going to work with the best devices as they come out. And there's going to be more and more of these actuators that can optimize your sleep environment in the next, like, two to five years. There's a number of things in the pipeline that I know about that are really going to create this environment for you in your home habitat that's going to make you more efficient. And we just want to do the hard science to validate those things and build the algorithms that do that, integrated with clinical practice in such a way where in five years from now, you're going to your doctor and instead of them prescribing you a drug, maybe they can prescribe you a software intervention like ours. And that's really what's inspired me in this space. Or maybe an AI can do it for you and save us all the time and money. Where are we in terms of yes. wearables? And what are you most excited about that you're seeing that most people haven't heard about? You know, as far as wearables go. Or IoT you know, in general. 
Okay, yeah. Um, you know, aura, the aura ring is a great form factor. Just the batter, the main hurdle right now with the wearables is the battery. So, for example, our system's going to integrate with Apple Watch soon, but you're probably going to have to charge the, phone, the watch before your bedtime. You know, Aura's figured out a way to get a two-week two battery, which is really important. Um, and so as these batteries get increasingly better, the compliance with actually using the system improves, and then all the algorithms improve at the same time. With IoT, I like to think about it, and we talk about this in our lab, there's wearables, nearables, and actuables. Um, and this is kind of the taxonomy that I use to think about the space. You know, so wearables can be anything, you know, that's kind of straightforward. It's, uh, it's attached to you. There's also certain things that you can do just with the phone placed by your bed, like detecting a snoring bedroom partner or noise pollution, where it's not actually attached to you, but it's measuring something and giving an intervention. We're interested in that too. And then there's also something that doesn't measure anything, but oh my gosh, it can control the temperature of your bed, of, of your bed. You know, we want to integrate with that system too. And there's a couple things out there like chili pad. There's a, a few bed jet. There's a few of these things that can uh, control the temperature of the bed. There's actually some evidence that you can control your body temperature on a wrist-based device, which is kind of an interesting thing with, um, with where wearables are, are taking us. Control or monitor? Um, control. Manipulate. Uh, it's this thing called Ember Wave, E-M-B-R. It's marketed largely for like hot flashes. So there's cool tech coming out that's going to be able to do all this. Interesting. When does it become something that average consumers can think about and afford? Right now, it's very much for the rich and powerful and mighty, which kind of helps the people ahead get further ahead, which is dangerous. I mean, this is the thing. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you have these like uh, really rich people that are fully optimized and living to 150. But yeah, we got Tim Ferriss. Uh, uh, or yeah. Well, well, yeah. The Tim Ferrisses. You know, I really believe that this should be accessible, and that's why we make a solution that's free on a smartphone. Um, and first and foremost, like, let's nail that. Um, and then from there, instead of, you know, making something, a hardware device that costs money, let's just integrate with things that people already have. So I guess, you know, almost everyone has a smartphone now. There is the affordability of, you know, buying a Fitbit and whatnot, but it's going to be like 99 bucks for like a high, high ac highly accurate sensor within the next like year or two. So actually, I think the price hurdle might be maybe less than how you're framing it. I don't know. I was thinking the bigger stuff like the chili pad, the juve light, the, the more intense biohacking stuff that people are doing. Yeah, I guess the more intense stuff. I mean, that's just how the market works a lot of times is, you know, you get the high end users and then if it's working, you start bringing down the price. I think, you know, you'll have a temperature solution that's affordable in the next like three to five years, I'd say. Um, and that's interesting because there is like some FDA approved device that lowers your body. Lowering your body temperature is actually good for falling asleep. And that's why like a hot shower is counterintuitively helpful because your body responds to the heat with lower body temperature. And actually, I do this thing where before bedtime, I'll do a hot shower and then put it cold for a while, lower my body temperature, and then go to sleep. And lowering that body temperature is, there's an FDA-approved device for insomnia, I think, correct, I might be wrong, that does that. But also, you actually lose thermoregulation when you're in REM. Literally, your body, if it's hot, will get hotter, like a reptile. If it's cold, it'll get colder when you're in REM sleep. And so there's probably ways, and we're looking into this, of detecting that in real time and shifting you in a way that enhances your REM. Interesting. Outside of your core work and research, outside of sleep, outside of IoT, what technologies are you most excited about and why? Outside of my work. Let me think about this for a second. Um, I've been in work mode for so long that I've... Oh, I mean, I'm all about personalization and really understanding the causal mechanisms. And so... You know, I think that there's this frontier in health and well-being around not just providing some, you know, solution, some pill that they've done a population study and shown that it's valid. Like, I want that personalized nutritional solution. And there's companies now that'll like measure your um, blood and then give you personalized vitamins based on your own sleep or based on your own biomarkers. 
Like, I think that's really cool. Things around like understanding the gut in order to do similar sorts of interventions like that, I also think are really cool. The other frontier that I find fascinating as a cognitive psychologist is like the brain stimulate. And, you know, this is actually kind of my work related stuff is the brain stimulation. You know, we do brain stimulation with sound, but the whole brain stimulation with electricity, like halo neuroscience, um, and also like the BCI brain computer interface stuff is a little bit further out, but that excites me. It's a it's a super interesting future. Does it terrify you at all? The especially the BMI BCI deal. Um, I think the AI terrifies. I, I think that we're going to have to merge with technology at the end of the day. I think if it's within, like, I would much rather us be cyborgs than AI. I, I'm more scared of AI, I guess, than us becoming cyborgs. I think we basically have to become cyborgs eventually. Ah, uh, that might be a little bit controversial. But um, yeah, I guess the way that I think about it, and you know, this is, I've been wrestling with this for a while, like has technology helped us in the last 10 years? And if you look at some of the health statistics, you could easily make the argument, no. I mean, the um, average lifespan has decreased for the last three years in the United States, which is the arguably the most technologically active country. So I don't know if it's hurting, but it's clearly maybe not helping that much. But at the end of the day, um, all this tech is just a tool. And as humans, we use tools to either do good things or bad things. You know, we could use nuclear power. We could use the fusion understanding to make nuclear power, or we could use it to make atomic bombs. So I think just a lot of this, come, it's not technology that's the problem. It's just how we think about it and use it. And I hope that people are really moving forward, being more conscientious of that. I think a big problem is the business model. I would push back on the U.S. thing and say the U.S. also has the most broken healthcare system in the world that's designed around greed and not really good outcomes. Right. Like, I don't want to make a company whose business model relies on some malfeasance or negative outcome. That's my whole thing. Like, I only want to make money if I improve your health. So, like, not an insurance company. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. Where, um, where do you see the quantified self movement being the furthest along? And where do you see it ultimately flourishing most? I mean, I think probably it's done best in like the diabetes, like the diabetes space. Oh, what co- what country? Sorry. Uh, oh, what country? Um, I don't really have a good sense of that. I guess I guess I got to travel more. I know that they have a pretty big movement in France. I think the whole movement has sort of died out a little bit as everyone is kind of got diluted. Almost everyone tracks something now, so it's less of like a thing. And they track it and don't do a whole lot with it. That's the problem. It's just like tracking for the sake of tracking. But that's why we're trying to actually do real-time interventions and, you know, integrate with clinical practice. Then it actually starts becoming useful. Then it starts becoming useful. All of that's pretty hard right now, though, with HIPAA, which ironically yeah. is the healthcare portability, something, something portability. So it's supposed to be about making it easy for consumers to move around their data. And it's the exact opposite. Yeah. Um, and if there's any entrepreneurs listening, like starting that HIPAA compliance thing earlier from a tech perspective is something I would highly recommend. Because if you do it ipso facto or whatever, you know, it becomes a lot harder to do. So like we're building the HIPAA compliance like into our system from the start. Would you, if you were starting over, would you do it in the US or Europe? Um, Ooh, you got to think about it. That, that kind of is telling in and of itself. I'm just thinking about, I mean, I would probably do it. I think my my whole network is here. You know, I work, I wouldn't be able, well, honestly, I have to say the U.S. Because actually, we couldn't have done this without the federal, U.S. federal government. I mean, this is like risky scientific research that we're doing. And, you know, a VC isn't necessarily going to fund doing some risky scientific research that's going to be the most accurate sleep detection system. At the end of the day, like we think we have a good chance of pulling this off the next three to six months. And that wouldn't have been possible without the biggest venture capitalist in the United States, the United States. And, and they're funding a lot, of the, a lot of these scientific-backed companies like ours. I'd be interested to see if Europe is more, doing more on the funding side. I know China is blowing it away, but there's other issues related with that. 
I think that like NSF NIH is like uniquely good in the United States. I might be wrong about that, and I'm curious if we, your we've had we've had some it. we've had some people from the NS uh, National Science Foundation on or past NSF people, and they they seem to still be optimistic despite the despite the certain circumstances. Yeah, I mean the funding has actually continued to come through even when it's been threatened to not come through many times, which. Trust me, as like an academic and a scientist, like that's really frustrating when like, oh, we spent all this time on these grants, but the federal government shut down. That's kind of like a scary time for the academic. But I think it'll be okay at the end of the day. It's kind of funny they can shut down and still charge you taxes for that time. Not to, yeah. not to, not to be pushing on that. What, um, what technology has you the most worried and why? Um, <laughs> I mean, I, the, these smartphones and these kids being addicted to them, like it freaks me out. And I, I feel like there's a whole social thing that's being missing from the earlier generation. And I would love, you know, after this to really think about how to solve that problem of people living inside of their two-dimensional screens. Basically not living. Yeah, it's a, it's a major, major issue. At least people are talking about it more. I think, I mean, I think to be honest, the only solution in a solution where the market's failed is regulation. And I think the advertising model makes it nearly impossible to do anything other than what Facebook and Google and Apple have done. Yeah. I mean, it's just these companies are incentivized to make these devices as addictive as possible. Like, what if your smart, the motivation of your smartphone was to make you as healthy as possible? Like, could we make a business model around that? I think we could. I think it's possible. The question is, do you need to? So like, we could make a cigarette as addictive as we wanted to. We could put cocaine in the early editions of Coke, but then that just became against the rules. I think we're going to have to do the against the rules thing because yeah, here put the, some reg. Yeah, there's too much money in the existing structure. Right. That, that's interesting. Like, put some regulation on making it less addictive somehow. I, I, I'm just, it's a slippery slope there. I don't know what that would necessarily look like. I think you probably have to ban targeted advertising in some way. In terms of if mm. you have a certain amount of, but it's kind of like the it's kind of like the concept with a lawyer. A lawyer is not allowed to testify against you. Oh, I see. Because you're their client and you enter into those privileges. Well, should someone be allowed huh. to take advantage of those same type of things to sell you something, especially when you didn't even freaking agree to any of it? If you were to ban uh, targeted advertising, like all of these companies would be out of business. All of these companies would be out of business. Most of the startups would crash. And I've heard, from, I've heard from some relatively credible people that a mass percentage of the, the digital ad spend may in fact be fraud. But I don't know if that's true or not. But I've seen enough. What, I've seen oh, enough is, ident- is identi- identifi- identity fraud, you said? No, no, just fraud. So click farms, et cetera. You see these videos of a uh, thousand guys in India going through and do, 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 do. Yeah, and that's the sad thing. Like, um, you know, is Facebook's... And it's not optimizing towards anything good. We're optimizing towards shit. Yeah, it's optimizing towards a fraudulent thing, which is making pe- bad people for hate everyone. each other. Yeah. And they're make and when you're making money off of that fraudulent thing too, then that's when the incentives get all messed up and bad things happen. I think Europe's doing a much better job in terms of what they're trying to do. Although, I mean, the path to hell is paved in good intentions. G- GDPR has some ma- major issues, but in general, yeah, and the ideas. That's why like Aura, for example, is like, you know, some of these European companies now are actually being more progressive in their data policies. And so it's like nicer to work with a hardware company that's European than the US, because for so long, it's actually getting a little bit better now. But for like so long, like the Fitbits and I don't want to, maybe I shouldn't mention names, but are very closed about Apple, their data, (laughs) are very closed about their data. But to do like the innovative science, like, come on, give us this physiological data that's going to improve people's health and well-being. The, things are changing. And I think the, the FDA has um, actually required some of these hardware companies to, to give more of the physiological data that's important for doing this stuff. We're not, I'm not talking like identifiable data that'll do like marketing things. I'm talking like, let's try to like measure your heart rate in real time and identify when you're having a heart attack. Which would be lovely, and we're finally getting there. We're pretty close to that. I mean, that, that's definitely going to happen within our lifetimes. Now we just have to get the pre-heart attack, like the dog that can smell the, the stroke, not the stroke, the seizure coming. 
Maybe I'm in the wrong business. I should just get uh, tra- trained dogs to smell disease instead of uh, detecting it from wearables. You could probably train an aura ring. I know I hear some really controversial stuff, actually, speaking of what we were talking about the with the Google CAPTCHAs and stuff of that nature, where companies are using deep learning to be able to analyze people's behaviors, cross-correlate that to risk of neurological disease and degradation in performance over time, and then selling that data to insurers basically saying, hey, look uh, look who's getting a little bit slower. You might want to reconsider the policy. Are they allowed to sell that nope, to insurers? they're not allowed to do I, any of they're it. They're not, but they're, right? They're doing they're all of it. They're not allowed to. What? They're not allowed to do any of it, but they're doing all of it. Really? That's my understanding. Of course, this is all huh. speculation, folks. None of this is, well, we don't have any names. But yes, that's what I've heard. I doubt Google's doing it, but I know people are supposedly doing it. And it makes, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, Insurance is scumbaggy. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that worries me, frankly, a little bit about like the 23andMe thing after seeing like the movie Gattaca. But that's why like having these, like you really need to enforce. I don't know if these companies, I, I have no idea about the nuances of what you're, if they're actually, what's actually happening in practice. But that's why like, let's hold our lawmakers accountable to like having data privacy an important issue. I mean, that's kind of like up to us to some degree too, as, um, as citizens. At least Europe's doing it for us. At least Europe is trying to pave the way a little bit. There's a, there was a great Winston Churchill quote, and it's like, whenever there's no other options, then you can expect the Americans to do the right thing or something like that. And it, <laughs> I mean, it was, oh, Winston Churchill was hilarious in his own way. But it's, uh, it, yeah, it is, it is a little bit terrifying to consider, but at least somebody's leading the charge. Uh-huh. I got one last question for you, Dan. This has been a fun one. Before, I tell, before you tell people where to find you and all that fun stuff. If you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, it can be anything. What would it be and why? Take your recovery seriously. Like I, I'm not like the healthiest person in the world, but like I make sure that I get the sleep that I need. And I think that that has helped me tremendously. And so I guess it's almost like a be balanced thing. You can only work so hard and you just got to recharge. And when you take that recharge time seriously, it's going to improve the outcome of, of everything else. And if you don't believe him, just try it. I'm pretty sure after you try it a couple times, then you will come around. Dan, so. Dan, this has been fun. If people want to learn more about you and what you do, where do they find you? So you can check us out at Sonic Sleep Coach. You know, we're on Android and iPhone. And every once in a while, I'll do some sleep consultations if you really want to hack into your sleep. You can check out my TED Talk where I get into some of the deep science of what we're doing, the deep sleep stimulation. And yeah, I'm pretty accessible. If you just ping me, if you have any questions, be happy. Today's to episode is brought to you guys awesome. by Thanks for coming I'm on. personally this is incredibly one. passionate Appreciate about. it. I remember Great the last show. time we yeah, went thanks to Thanks for tuning in, guys. The tiger go, uh, was go walking do something back and awesome forth. And then he looked nuts. Sleep. He looked like Peace. he hated his life because he did. He was in this tiny little exhibit, nowhere near big enough, and was clearly going out of his mind. Today's show sponsor, Big Cat Rescue, is a Tampa-focused charity creating the world's first augmented reality zoo to take these incredible animals out of zoos and let them stay in the wild while bringing kids and parents closer to the experience of what it means to be wild, natural, and free. This is something I was passionate about. We gave them a massively discounted rate because this is such an important mission. ARZOO.ME for more details. That's ARZOO.ME for more details. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.